Okay, hi everyone. Um, welcome to our um, kind of panel event, which I didn't actually think of a snappy name for, but this is um, something I've been really looking forward to and really excited about. This is um, a kind of supporting event to go with the exhibition Earth AD that's currently on at Weising Art Centre. Um, so um, I should kind of introduce the people I've got with you. First of all, I'm, my name's Uma, um, and um, with me today, um, I've got, oh, I should do the housekeeping first. So I'm doing these big things back to front. So first thing of all is um, this event is being recorded. Um, so it will be kind of archived after the fact. So if you want to revisit it, it will be on the Weising Broadcast website. Um, it will be subtitled. Um, and there should be a link from the uh, stream text that you can go to. Um, and um, yeah, and it's being, yeah, and it's being kind of archived. Um, so I'm going to introduce myself first of all. I said my name is Uma Breakdown. I'm an artist and researcher based in the northeast of England, um, and uh, I've just kind of well, it's been about a month now since the Earth AD opened at Weising Art Centre. It's a touring show co-commissioned very generously by Weising Art Centre and Quad in, uh, in Derby and Fact in Liverpool. And uh, with me today, I'm very happy to say I have my friends Angela Whitey-Chan. Angela Whitey-Chan is an independent researcher, curator and artist specialising in climate change. Her work explores power in relation to the inequity throughout the history of the climate crisis through self-archiving, rethinking geographies and speculative fiction. Her recent research art commissions focus on water scarcity, conflict and everyday experiences through climate framings and communications. Since 2014, Angela has produced curatorial projects and workshops as Wormar Ecology, collaborating with artists, activists and youth groups. She co-directs the London Science Fiction Research Community. Angela is also a research consultant, having worked in inter international climate and cultural policy and on climate and sustainability projects for major cultural institutions. Also with me today is Dr. Tom Dillon, who is a researcher whose work investigates the politics and aesthetics of speculative fiction magazines. They recently finished a PhD thesis on the speculative fiction magazine New Worlds from the 1960s. Tom is a founding member of Beyond Gender, a research collective that looks at the representation of gender in relation to race, sexuality and class in science fiction. He is a former director of the London Science Fiction Research Community. Um, so these are, I'm going to give you a quick outline of what we're going to do today. I've got um, these wonderful people who are each going to, I think we'll start with Angela and then Tom, and they're going to kind of give a kind of presentation on some of their current research uh, and things that they're interested in. And um, then after that, we're going to maybe have a little bit of a chat and then we're going to open to um, some questions. So think about any questions and you can send them directly through the chat in, in uh, Twitch and they'll wind up for a convoluted means, I wind up to me, my earpiece. Um, and uh, I think that is everything. So, Angela, are you ready to present? I am. First of all, I'll share my screen and let me know when you see it. Yes. Great. Um, so I am Angela, nice to meet everyone, and I'm so excited and so happy to be in this uh, space because Uma, we, we've been like e-friends for a few years, several years now, Yeah, quite a few. and Tom, like I've known of you from a distance um, for quite a while, and having this like LSFRC link is really special as well. 
So it's, yeah, it's great to be in this space. Um, and I guess I, I can even illustrate this um, with <laughs> my opening slide, which is a really amazing uh, illustration that Uma produced that I bought maybe in the summer. And it sits on my desk at home. I'm not at home at the moment, um, but it, yeah, it gives me uh, encouragement, inspiration, and a uh, bit of cheekiness every day I, I'm at that desk. Um, so yeah, just to kind of let everyone know that these brilliant illustrations are for sale from Uma's Instagram page. Um, so for me, um, I, what I prepared to share today is a little in response to some of the things that Uma and I have been chatting briefly about um, ahead of this session. And it's for me largely responding to the ways that we um, strategize on self-archiving and what it really means in terms, like for me, what it, it, it brings together for the ways that we storytell uh, the climate crisis. And um, I think that it might be helpful for me to kind of just highlight some of the key themes that I'll be going through in the next segment. Um, so firstly, I feel that it's really important to be um, thinking about counter narratives, which stand as resistances to the mainstream narrative um, in this context, you know, that I work in the mainstream stories that we're hearing and uh, also kind of um, disseminating within our own spaces about climate change. But what really matters is also kind of the counter narratives that um, don't get resourced, they're actively erased, um, and what this has on the implication of the presence and the futures that we um, are kind of moving through in terms of the climate crisis is really important. Uh, for us to think about um, also creatively as well. Um, and then another kind of question I think about quite often is what constitutes climate data? Because in talk, talking about stories and like giving our perspectives, we're also feeding a lot of information into the ways that we're describing our experiences. And so to kind of um, maybe destabilize the power systems that uh, really contribute or kind of steer the ways that mainstream uh, climate stories are being told um, that might not represent us, might not be representing marginalized communities. Um, and to really kind of what I think of um, throughout my practice, whether it's like uh, through research for curatorial projects or for um, more recently visual arts projects, um, or, you know, researching with other artists on the frameworks for what, you know, what is sustainability in, in the arts, in the art sector, which is also an industry, um, for us to deconstruct the criteria for expertise. So really problematize, you know, uh, what expertise could mean, rather than to break it down from something that um, says, oh, climate science doesn't matter. Like, that's not, that's not what I mean. Um, what I'm valuing alongside that is that, okay, we need to also recognize the power systems that have constructed the hierarchies, um, which frame like what kind of uh, sciences, uh, traditional ecological knowledges, or kind of like, you know, everyday experiences that we value or we don't value in conversations about climate change. 
And um, so I kind of come from, uh, when I work on my projects, I think a lot about colonial histories. And it's, you know, a, a, the starting point also of um, the climate crisis as well. And specifically for me, I am very interested in the British Empire, the way that it continues through to the contemporary as well, in the ways that we um, narrativize um, climates and environmental issues. So I'm going to give you an example just briefly, because I think, you know, this is a project that I've done maybe a bit of a while ago. And so um, I'll move on to uh, a more recent project later on. And I want to describe to you this um, research project that ended up to be a video piece that I did in 2021 as a way to um, kind of illustrate the ways that climate framings are really important to how we position ourselves and also kind of take on the mainstream narratives quite critically. So. Um, the Great British Rain Paradox is an actual report. I mean, it sounds pretty sci-fi. It's it's quite a it, the name is very eye-catching, and so uh, it was published in 2020 by RB Finish, which is a dishwasher detergent company. And this report was supported by the UK government's environmental agency, and it warns about the UK's projected water scarcity crisis within the next 20 years. The report describes a paradox that while 77% of the British public respondents um, uh, believes the UK is a wet and rainy country and assume there are um, adequate water reserves, in reality, our demand for water could soon outstrip supply. So for me as a researcher, I was quite critical about the um, way that this report go, goes on uh, to frame uh, the, the water scarcity issues, um, specifically around the UK, without transparently telling the uh, public um, about the uh, decades of state deregulations, which means that water companies and sewage companies um, are not by law, um, I guess, like, um, uh, they, they are not required by law uh, to register when they have been polluting the water uh, ecosystems. And so for this report, it's framed as, uh, you know, a, a water saving uh, strategy framework. And it's very kind of consumer focused. It doesn't address us as, you know, um, citizens with rights to water. And what does this um, tell us for the future of the climate narrative? So this report's saying, okay, in 2040, there's going to be issues. And I'm already looking ahead that the government, this is archives on the government's website, that they, the authorities could be saying in 20 years time, oh, look, in 2020, we told you so. We warned you about these issues and we told you to save on water. And so throughout this project and also after it was exhibited, um, you know, there was a really great kind of like um, public momentum about water uh, health in, across the UK. And so for me, thinking about, you know, the potentials for, um, you know, this, uh, 
this narrative being twisted back onto citizens um, in the future is actually very real. And so for me as a researcher, I thought, okay, my methodology could be to speak to people who I know around the UK are very involved in their own communities. And, you know, they might not be specialists in water nor climate issues, but they know their surroundings. And so from the Shetland Islands to Birmingham to, you know, London um, and Cardiff, people, largely racialized people, were talking to me about, you know, their experiences of water and water stories. And, you know, in this, like, um, Fatima and Kadra was telling me about how, you know, there's something about how water can cross borders. And it finishes off, they say that, you know, but people can't. And so thinking also about water in terms of migration, like these are all embedded in the ways that we see water, not just as a, you know, utility commodity, but something that is really um, fundamental to why we're even here in the first place. And um, Lalu and Yasmin talk more about the way that it shaped, water has shaped Cardiff in terms of the cultural identity, the racial identity of the place. And so throughout this project, I'm going to just list the names of people that who were involved. Um, here we have Laulu Alatiz and Yasmin Begum. Previously in the previous slide was Kajal Modi and then also Raman Munder, Shamika Ruduk, Jennifer Edwards, Amara Spence and Fatima Tarkleman. And um, part of the video was also this animation piece um, of illustrations that took a very fluffy looking moss down many different types of waterways. And it's a reminder for us to rehydrate. And so more recently, I've been thinking about, you know, how do we, how do we move away from, you know, producing stuff as artwork? You know, how do we move towards producing strategies, tools, ways of kind of, um, you know, breaking um, the, notion of artists must create to exhibit. Um, to create these climate stencils, um, I'm just going to kind of describe what they were about. You can see on the left-hand side that there's um, a kind of template and on in the middle you have the instruction kind of leaflet as well, which was also translated into Italian on the right-hand side. And I was doing these workshops um, in England, Wales and Italy and um, the climate stencils were workshops that use question prompts and conversations as well as drawings to design our own individual stencils where each symbol in these squares um, represent a range of our feelings and experiences related to climate change. So eventually after these prompts and conversations um, each participant would create their own a unique stencil to non-verbally express climate issues day to day or week by week, depending on how they would like to use the stencils. So it's a bit of a joke on this kind of like section on YouTube where you have people who are very into like tracking and um, using their kind of like bullet journals to express their day to day um, experiences. And because like for me, like if you were to ask me how I felt about climate issues this time last year, I might be referring to something that was big and well covered in the media. 
um, rather than kind of go inward and think, oh, what was I kind of feeling? So in this kind of like quick exercise workshop um, series, it was just a way to open up some of the ways that we could be thinking about our own personal climate data um, as a as a kind of tracking tool that's that says, you know, again, like we have a lot of our lived experiences that are really valid and that we bring quite a lot of um, perspectives already um, and that we don't need to be you know, quote unquote experts in order to even feel engaged in these conversations. I guess working in this kind of overlap of arts and climate change for more the past eight years, it, there's these very stark um, parallels that I see between, you know, who uh, feel entitled and don't feel um, allowed to participate in these spaces, both the the arts and the environmental climate movements. There are systemic barriers that exclude certain demographics of people um, from feeling like they can step into the space, let alone um, steer and shape what that um, space can look like for them. Um, and so it's, you know, building these stencils were uh, a fun activity. Um, and you can see some of the examples that came out as well working with people um, in a range of um, disabilities and um, also ages and also languages as well. So I'd be intrigued to see how some of people, if they were to start tracking things, how that work. Um, but there's no commitment um, for them to do so. It's on their own terms. And so I think I want to finish by, you know, anchoring um, a lot of these into why I'm so interested in thinking about information, narratives and data as well. I want to you know, invite you to um, have a look at some of the real world databases that are telling uh, stories of climate resistances and experiences that are not necessarily in the mainstream or in the British media mainstream as well. Um, for quite a lot of last year, I was working in international climate and cultural policy, largely looking at how cultural sectors around the world um, are or are not using environmental policies. Um, so kind of like how sustainable is the art sector um, globally? And what are the intentions to kind of have this um, kind of a cultural shift as well? And in, in part of my research, I came across um, Tatiana Pardo Ibarra, who is an investigative um, journalist specializing in climate change um, and was describing um, Tierra de Resistance, uh, an open database that documents violence attacks against environmental leaders in Latin America and the Carib uh, Caribbean between 2009 and 2020. And um, this is a really, um, you know, important uh, database for people to recognize that also when we're visualizing data, um, it can also be across languages that we understand like the, the stories behind them. And we, it's a great reminder also that when we're working on these projects creatively, that we also have to be accountable to people who are um, experiencing uh, the violences and devastations day in, day out. 
for example, here, like where um, being an environmentalist is not a choice. Um, it is not a curatorial uh, kind of um, fun term. It is not something that's short term either. And another database that I wanted to point towards is the Global South Climate Database. And this is um, by Carbon Brief with Reuters Institute's um, Oxford Climate Journalism Network. And so it says that it aims to ensure that journalists from all over the world can contact climate experts from Asia, Africa, Latin America, and the Caribbean and the Pacific. And um, there's a climate journalist who I was in touch with recently, who was my course mate. We, we studied geography together. Diego Arguelles Ortiz was telling me that, um, you know, this had just peaked at the thousand mark last week. It was published only a couple of weeks ago. And he described that the goal of the project is to ensure that journalists from all over the world can contact um, scientists from the global south. So it's really, you know, um, uh, destabilizing who gets to have like this microphone that speaks for so much of the um, populations who are experiencing climate change already. So I'll leave it as that and um, look forward to our chat as well. Thanks. Thank you so much, Angela. Um, there's just, yeah, there's so much in, from that in my head now, but we're going to come and have a talk after we've done um, Tom's presentation. So Tom, if you're ready. I am ready, yes. Um, is my audio coming through? Yes, beautifully. Okay, great. Um, yeah, thanks very much for inviting me. I'm very excited to be here and talking to everyone. And thanks, Angela, for your wonderful talk. There's, um, yeah, it feels very urgent what you're talking about. Um, and I hope what I'm going to be talking about links to it in some way. And I guess the way in which I think it will probably link to it the most clearly is the idea of counter narratives. And but I hope that will come clear as, as as we go on through the talk. But thank you for sharing your research and for those very practical ways in which you're going about trying to bring about those counter narratives. So I'm just going to share my screen now. Okay. Is, is that come up then? Can you see that? Okay. Yes. So, yeah, I'm going to be talking today about the the author, Michael Moorcock, and talking about some of the queer implications of his writing. And I hope to talk a bit about um, counter narratives as well to link a bit to Angela's fantastic talk. Um, so I'm going to be reading from a script, so I hope it won't be too stilted. <laughs> I'll try and break at different points to make it a bit more human rather than a robot talking. Okay, so uh, Michael Moorcock is a science fiction and fantasy writer, still just about working today, um, but his, his output has slowed greatly in recent times. He used to, he claimed to write novels in three days in the 1960s, and he wrote hundreds of novels. Um, I always find it interesting to know how people know about Michael Moorcock. Um, different aspects, different ways in which people know him. He's most famous as a, a fantasy writer of sword and sorcery. Um, that's probably the, the, the way that people know him best. Um, he's also well known within the science fiction academic community as a, an editor of New Worlds magazine, 
and it was very influential at the time in the 1960s and I'll be speaking a bit about that and lastly I don't know if you can see it or whether the video is blocking it a lot of people who are around in the 1960s and 70s know Michael Moorcock is a, a countercultural figure he was a lyricist for the band Hawkwind and that's a picture of him there on the screen playing a guitar um, in this talk I'm going to try and as far as possible merge these three aspects into one because they're all going on at the same time and the aim is to explore the queer elements of his work and I hope this will um, speak to Uma's work as well. I'm going to begin with an introduction to Moorcock's life and work before moving on to take a closer look at some of the writing that I believe contain an ambiguous queerness and specifically um, the character of Jerry Cornelius which I'll be speaking about. I'm going to end with an evaluation of um, the intention, Moorcock's intentions and the reader response to the Jerry Cornelius stories. Um, Moorcock was born in Mitcham in South London in 1939 and he grew up in the kind of period of time in London during the Blitz and post-war austerity. Um, he describes these times as an exciting time, strangely, and there's this sense in which he enjoyed playing amongst the ruins. Um, he read widely from a young age, and his first true passion was Edgar Rice Burroughs. He, they're very easy to source these novels at the time, Edgar Rice Burroughs novels, because they're freely available in bookshops and train stations. From the ages of 14 to 17, he edited his own zine about Burroughs called Burroughsania, and it's up there on the screen, one of the, the first issues. Um, on the strength of this, he, at the age of 17, he became a professional editor of a magazine called Tarzan Adventures, which you can see on the right of the screen there, and um, which essentially repackaged American Tarzan comic strips for a UK audience. At around about this time, he started trying to imitate um, heroic fantasy, because um, he was really interested in, in heroic fantasy. So the works of Edgar Rice Burroughs and um, Robert E. Howard, who wrote Conan the Barbarian, and he first of all started writing these as pastiches, but then they later become, became critiques of the problematic imperialist and white supremacist overtones of these writers. Um, but these stories that he first started writing feature the ghoulish Eric and his vampiric phallic sword Stormbringer. And I put some um, illustrations and book covers of this character. These stories were picked up by um, an editor called E.J. Carnell, and he edited a a fantasy magazine called Science Fantasy. He also edited a magazine called New Worlds. Um, and around this time, so around his late teens and early 20s, Michael Moorcock became involved in a number of different subcultures, including playing in bands, um, being part of anti-racist political campaigns, and also being part of the science fiction fan community. So in 1964, when Moorcock was 24, and that's right, if my math is correct. He was offered uh, the opportunity to edit New Worlds magazine, and he edited the magazine until 1970. Um, during his time at New Worlds, he's widely viewed by academics and critics as ushering in a new movement in science fiction that's known as the science fiction new wave. The new wave was characterized by experimental literary techniques and the introduction of well, the apparent introduction of more edgy content, such as sex, drugs and madness. Um, during his time editing the magazine, Moorcock um, published a number of well-known or were soon to become well-known figures, such as J.G. Ballard, 
um, Pamela Zolin and Thomas Pynchon. And also a lot of a host of different writers and authors as well. You can see one of the covers has an MC Escher illustration on the front that I have up there on a, on a slide. Um, Moorcock has described his motivation for, for shaking up science fiction as attempting to create what he uh, called a popular avant-garde. So trying to merge popular fiction with avant-garde experimentation. And this idea was very much in the air in the 1960s. There were lots of um, people and groups trying to merge popular modes and experimental techniques. Um, just off the top of my head, something like pop art is an example, or penguin paperbacks and the Beatles and uh, examples of 1960s um, groups and products that are trying to mix popular and avant-garde forms. Um, Susan Sontag described this at the time as what she called the new sensibility. And she saw it as creating one culture, which was emerging of popular and experimental avant-garde forms, but also merging artistic and literary uh, spheres as well. And Moorcock also described his work as part of this new sensibility. So the content of New Worlds wasn't particularly gay or queer. And even when there were explicitly gay moments within the stories, it was often in an ironic or cynical way. Um, however, what I want to suggest is that the destabilization of these binaries between popular and avant-garde forms had some queer implications, um, which were exhibited most clearly in Moorcock's own work. So I'm just gonna talk now about Moorcock's queer Queerish writing. Um, so, soon after taking over as editor of New Worlds in 1964, Moorcock invented the character of Jerry Cornelius, and I have the first illustration of him up here on, on the screen. He's a trendy young musician assassin, um, and he was first introduced by Michael Moorcock as a, a kind of model for other writers in how to produce writing that was both popular and avant garde at the same time. So, the first story that he published in New Worlds magazine um, was a rewrite of the Elric stories and I showed you a few slides back Elric but updated to the modern world. Um, so Jerry Cornelius is in some ways a update of Elric and Moorcock introduced this story as an experiment, an example of the anarchic approach to storytelling which he hoped that writers and readers would respond to. The first story was followed by two more, and these were later published as the final programme. Uh, Moorcock then set about writing a sequel called A Cure for Cancer, uh, which was published, was serialised in New Worlds in 1969 and then published in 1971. And then he also published two further uh, Jerry Cornelius novels in the 1970s. In the late 1960s, other writers who were involved with New Worlds became interested in Jerry Cornelius and started writing their own stories that were published in New Worlds that featured the characters, the character of Jerry Cornelius. And these included, sorry, James Salis, Brian Aldiss and M. John Harrison. These writers expressed the view that they found the forms of the stories liberating, a break from the constraints of either popular forms or experimental narratives. Though these stories written by other authors don't strictly follow a chronology, um, rather, they exist as different versions of the same character or different universes. The development of each story were weaved into the next one. So the, the authors were responding to each other's stories. Formerly, 
the stories mix the plots and imagery of popular fiction with modernist techniques. So images and plots taken from science fiction, fantasy, spy novels, pornography, among others, were expressed using the experimental techniques of surreal juxtaposition, typographical experiments, irony and collage. And this is an illustration that was published in New Worlds that's a collage of different uh, texts and different drawings of Jerry Cornelius. Um, the instability of the narrative was deliberately mirrored in the instability of the character. If the aim of the form was to destabilize the division between experimental and popular writing, then the character follows suit, undermining the divide between binary sex, gender and sexuality, as, re as well as race and class. When I was um, writing my PhD, which I finished last year, I think, I drew some diagrams to help me work out exactly what's going on with this character. And this is one of them that I put up on the screen here. Um, but essentially, uh, for me, what Moorcock was doing was trying to express an anti-imperious politics um, with these kind of play of binaries. So the white straight male of popular fiction that Moorcock had read as a child, such as Tar Tarzan and Conan the Barbarian, um, he was kind of playing around with that, trying to destabilize them. And I guess that links with this idea of counter narratives, but also the kind of deconstruction of these narratives of, um, I guess, Western humanism of the that dominant subject position of the white heterosexual male. Um, and Jerry Cornelius is this character who kind of dissolves into different subject positions. Today, I'm going to be mainly talking about the ambiguities of sex, gender and sexuality, um, though it's important to remember that these binaries, the binaries of sex, gender and sexuality are intimately related to binaries of race and class. Um, so <clears throat> in Jerry Cornelius's first outing, the first story, he slept with a man in the first scene and he merges with his nemesis, Miss Brunner, in the last scene to create a gender non-binary messiah figure. Um, in later stories, the instability of the, of the character only increased, sleeping with both men and women and generally blur blurring the edges of gender. His identity moving between man and woman, masculine and feminine, and his, his bisexuality is at all times ambiguous, disallowing any possibility of stable sexuality and gender. I'm just going to show you an example now of, the kind of, the, of this kind of instability. So this quotation comes from the third Jerry Cornelius novel, um, The English Assassin. Um, and in this particular vignette, which is the, the narrative is made up of lots of short sections. In this particular part of the narrative, Jerry Cornelius is in Guatemala with an associate called Colonel Pyatt. And they're, they're trying to buy ironclads. It's a steampunk alternative reality. Um, the two of them are going back to, they, they finish their day of trying to buy ironclads and Colonel Pyatt invites Jerry Cornelius up to um, his rooms that he's staying in. I'll just read out the quotation. Let's get a bottle each, shall we? I have a suite upstairs and perhaps someone can find us a couple of girls or perhaps two girls will volunteer their services. Everyone is emancipated in Guatemala City. Fine. When they had risen, Pyatt flung his arms around Jerry's slender shoulders. Do you feel like a girl, Colonel Cornelius? So on one level, we have a quite straightforward uh, narrative of white colonial heterosexuality. Colonel Pyatt's professed wish is to find two women to sleep with. And that would suggest that this final sentence, do you feel like a girl, Colonel Cornelius, is a question about whether Jerry Cornelius approves of his plan 
i.e. would Jerry Cornelius like to sleep with a woman that evening? Uh, there's another more subversive interpretation, um, which I don't think is that subtle, um, that Jerry Cornelius might in fact feel like a woman and might wish to sleep with a man. Jerry Cornelius is never given the opportunity to reply that the chapter ends with this question and we're left kind of ambiguously positioned. We're not sure exactly which of those two options is the correct one. These moments of ambiguity punctuate these Jerry Cornelius stories. The continual movement between binaries leads to a breakdown of the character into multiplicity. So a dissolution of this white Western subject, male, straight, um, able-bodied, white, did I say that already, <laughs> into difference. Um, so not only were the Jerry Cornelius stories a literary experiment challenging the hierarchies of fiction, but they were also a political challenge to hierarchies of identity within the colonial and patriarchal order. I'm going to end quickly with thinking about how people received the stories at the time. Um, so whether these stories were intentionally queer on Moorcock's part or whether it was something that was being read into. So fittingly, the queer intentionality is quite ambiguous. On the one hand, Moorcock has spoken of Jerry Cornelius as a satire of the counterculture, including the sexual revolution. And a couple of critics have also picked up on that. Um, one critic has found in one of Moore Michael Moorcock's notebooks for a Jerry Cornelius novel, a note that appears to suggest that it's all a kind of satire on um, sexual experimentation in the 1960s. Um, so apparently Moorcock wrote that the stories were a satire on the general kinkiness of present day thinking and imagery. And some of the narratives actually come, come, can come across as a little bit queer phobic as well. On the other hand, and in complete contradiction to the idea of Jerry Cornelius as a parody of the counterculture, Moorcock su has suggested that the stories took for granted, as he did, bisexuality and, if you like, homosexuality as perfectly ordinary expressions of human passion and love. He wrote that the first novel itself, The Final Programme, was an attempt to argue for the blending of masculine and feminine traits as a kind of balancing to overcome the shortcomings of the 1960s. So you could see that these, these stories as both a parody and an affirmation. So it could be a dystopia of 1960s London or a utopia celebrating freedom and possibility that comes out of, of the counterculture. Um, but what of the reaction to such ambiguous texts? Um, it appears that some did in fact see these stories as a satire on the counterculture. So one countercultural figure called Mick Farron did in fact complain about the Jerry Cornelius stories. They, um, some of the writers at New Worlds produced a comic for International Times, which is a countercultural magazine. And in it, they, they um, took the mickey out of the counterculture quite a lot. And a lot of uh, Mick Farron was upset about it. Um, but otherwise, it does seem that it went over people's heads mostly. Um, apparently the final programme was rejected by a lot of um, publishers, not only with disgust and concern for Moorcock's state of mind, but also with ang anger and hatred. So it produced a really visceral reaction. Um, the science fiction anthologist and author Judith Merrill, who was a big supporter of Moorcock, read the book and said it was evil and didn't want to have anything to do with it. Um, Mick Jagger apparently turned down the role of Jerry Cornelius in the 1973 film of the final programme because he said the part was too freaky. Um, in a more positive light, though a, a source of annoyance for Michael Moorcock, many readers really like Jerry Cornelius and they come to his house in Notting Hill dressed as the character. Um, and Moorcock thought that this was essentially missing the point and that they didn't see the irony of the character. But I also think that 
there is a quite clear reading and that suggests there is a queerness there. And I think those authors, sorry, authors, those readers were responding to that. I'm just going to end with an anecdote because I don't have any firm data that suggests that people read it in a particular queer way. But the only time that I've seen Michael Moorcock in person was at a reading of his last novel that was published in 2016. And in the questions afterwards, someone stuck up their hand and made a statement that was basically that they'd been really influenced by the Jerry Cornelius stories and specifically uh, reading the first novel and seeing the character sleep with a man and merge with a woman. And they were expressing how this was incredibly revelatory for them and helped them explore their sexuality. Apart from that, I don't have any evidence of it, except for me. I don't know if you noticed, I have the, the same kind of hair as Jerry Cornelius, so I kind of cosplay as him all the time. Um, but I'll, I'll end there. Uh, thanks very much for listening to me, and I've really enjoyed speaking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, both of you. Oh my God, this is like, uh, I've been trying to take notes and um, I'm kind of just getting completely lost here. Um, these are, there's, they're, they're such like amazing presentations that you've done. Um, so really, really appreciate this. Um, so as a kind of like uh, overall kind of thing, the reason I was interested in talking to you both was um, between the two of you, both this idea of like science fiction, but like, um, the specificness of uh, like systems and systems that are kind of um, maybe breaking down and um, unstable and the tendency towards entropy and also this idea of um, kind of I can't think of a better word than appropriation but it's not just appropriation so the things of like counter narratives uh, reclaiming narratives deciding who gets to talk um, moving a framing from one level to another level um and so i had i have like a whole bunch of things and it's been like a really hard thing to kind of work out where to start but i wanted to ask um say something to you so start with angela okay so angela i've been like trawling through your back catalog of of work right i've been trawling through it and um there's um some so much stuff that you produce that i'm really really interested in but there's one thing in particular that like really struck me and i know that you wrote these prompts for a research day at um is it bio art birmingham or is it birmingham bio art remember that it's only like a year ago. like bab lab bab lab right yeah, yeah. so like a kind it's of such a, a catchy name that let's yeah. go with bab lab bab lab so it's the thing about kind of introducing artists to using kind of bio art processes which is something I'm really interested in. Like um, a big thing in the show of Earth AD is the idea that like, if a thing is going to have to be made in a material that means it lasts forever, like if it's made of plastic, is it really worth making? Is, is it, is it, is a thing worth, is it good enough to be made if it's going to be around to the end of time and whether to make things that would kind of rot and stuff like that. So it's the kind of thing I was thinking about. I was like reading your thing and you wrote all these wonderful prompts to the people take apart the workshop. And there's a thing that really struck me from the beginning and you frame your prompts to the artists with this first thing, which is how does this living matter live by relating to its changing environment by relating to us? And in turn, how do we relate to it? And this as like a, a way of thinking about stuff, not as a fixed identity um, and not as like a general, how it identifies to everything else, but how does the thing work with something that's unstable? And 
this kind of actually clicked with a thing like a kind of like a horror story for me that's been in my head the whole time I was making the show, which is the kind of the story of the decline of the um, the saga antelopes. And the saga antelopes started dropping in numbers like hugely in the kind of 2010s, like mass, like 20,000 of the um, that uh, of the antelopes would like die over the course of like a few months. And it turned out that it was just an increase, well, likely it's an increase in temperature and humidity that meant that a kind of fairly benign bacteria that a load of them had in their beautiful huge noses um got too prolific and just eradicated all of them so this idea of like something unstable completely collapsing something is something i was really interested in so i wanted to ask you a little bit more about this principle of like how a thing relate how a thing can be understood through how it relates to an unstable environment and whether that has any other application at different scales or any of the other things that you're doing yeah, I guess, yeah, thanks for that question, because I, I guess it's always like checking the processes that we're using, whether it's um, directly using materials or kind of like indirectly, like moving through spaces um, that then shape uh, the erosion, maybe of that space, you know, whether it's natural, or whether it's a cultural space, like, what are we uh doing that impacts it because we're constantly negotiating these um uh yeah difficult um, processes to ensure that we keep things in balance if they're in balance there's harm or there's potential for violence and i think that um when we're using materials as like artists for example it there should also be like a a long-term understanding that that also has a life does it go into storage afterwards like the way that you were describing the materials um in your work decomposing and then also then being replaced for example uh like what does it mean to have like these substitutes as well where like yeah uh, it's it's uh these kind of like they're not quite clones maybe i'm interested in kind of like thinking like with you on that so like how much of a replication of the past are you then creating is it an archive to its like true like original or is it like a evolution of um the original artwork um and i think like in response to the brief that i was given for bioarts birmingham um to really like introduce to people who might not have had um, exposure to living beings as part of artworks, whether it's like microbial such as yeast or plant form or, um, you know, other kind of um, uh, like living beings um, was really interesting because for me, I don't, that's not an area of like, I guess, like materials that I have experienced working with so much. Um, and to see them as like evolving like neighbours then like became this kind of uh like thoughts that I could um steer that brief or that kind of like you know uh collection of prompts to give those artists or to give those readers because it's then not seeing art as an, an object but like within your ecosystem of like yeah like a, a neighborhood you're creating these um uh differently scaled architectures where various materials, animates or inanimates are then being, are then inhabiting. Um, 
And there's a lot of power involved in that. And so it's good to reflect on what kinds of like powers we're like redistributing um, or holding on to. Um, so yeah, I've answered that with more prompts. <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of bring a question to Tom. Um, but I I've got a kind of follow-up that I want to ask a bit more about. But yeah, Tom, so a big thing that I really, I mean, really interested with Michael Moorcock is, um, is I guess partly his politics, uh, how he's so, to a degree, not really in his own control, like connected to the anarchist movement, that like the symbol that him and Jim Cawthorn made for Elric, or not for Elric, but for I think it's actually for just chaos in general. The um, the eight pointed um, star gets kind of appropriated and and moves on beyond what they're doing but the idea of like order and chaos is something i was really interested in and that's why i was looking at the work and hearing your talk and going into the idea of the characters being kind of reused and shared and also going backwards and thinking about how morcock begins with like these like tight things of like pastiche and you know what could be tighter than like writing tarzan fanfic and stuff like that like so what do you think is like if any is there any kind of like um political or whatever scale kind of resonance of that idea of like sharing characters between authors of authors like not even having to complete a work with their own kind of character and then being no canonical story or sense of like stability yes it's fascinating <clears throat> i think it does have a, a political valence the idea of not having control over what you're producing and it's something that michael moorcock um, when he came up with the character of Jerry Cornelius, he said, please use it and do with it, do what, do with it what you want. And initially the idea was that some people were supposed to take it as a model for this, this uh, new type of writing that was supposed to be experimental, but also widely read. So a very 1960s idea of, of uh, kind of popular modernism. Um, but it's, it's essentially uh, um, what is now known as open source characters. And I think within um, comic books, comic books makes me sound like I'm 100 years old, uh, superheroes, for, in, for instance, there, there's also an open source movement to share characters and then not to be trademarked. And that, you know, it's a, it's a massive resistance to the commercialization of fiction um, because the shared characters don't happen very often outside of, say, a, a, ho a house character. So in the 19th century and 20th centuries, if there were characters that were shared around, for instance, the Beano is a good example. These characters are trademarked by the magazine and then the writers don't have really any control over it and what happens, they're just contracted to write it and their names aren't particularly important. But what Morcock was trying to say is, please take this character, it's yours as much as mine and do, what, do, what it, do with it what you want. And I think that is quite liberating in some ways and it has that anarchist sense of... Uh, democratizing and pushing back against commercialization of particular literary products anyone can use it you can do with it what you like um, but it also in a narrative sense opens up this idea of possibility because you're going from this very tightly controlled uh, literary product and I guess to link it with what Angelo is talking about it's this idea of decomposition you're taking something and you're letting it just dissolve and turn into other things. And that opens up a kind of what Mike, Michael Moorcock would call the multiverse of 
every single other possibility of a particular character or a particular narrative opening up. And I've I've connected this in in my research with uh, kind of anti Michael Moorcock's anti-imperialist politics. So the sense of this white uh, male straight character of adventure fiction, but also that kind of universal subject position of imperialism. And Michael Moorcock lets this character, this character, who Jerry Cornelius is that character, but he lets his character dissolve and decompose. And part of that is letting go of control, letting other authors read into it, but letting also other, yeah, letting other authors take over, but letting readers read into it what they want. And I think that has been a source of annoyance for Moorcock, but I think it's also partially the point as well. Right, thank you. Yes, um, I mean, this this actually comes back to what I was going to ask you, Angela, a little bit. So I think about you present the thing of, um, get the name right again. Um, so is, is it the great, the great British Rain Paradox? That's the original research thing that's done by Finnish. So I guess the thing I was thinking about when you're presenting that and you're talking about um, how people have this idea of like this country is rainy, therefore it's impossible for it to have a thing, have, have a drought. And I guess part of that is the idea that we know that it's a rainy country, but I was thinking about how this aligns with other such surveys that I've seen. So how uh, I saw a survey recently about how average people in America were interviewed about percentages of populations. So things like, um, like the trans community in America, the gen from the survey, the general people coming back were like um, were kind of saying that they thought the idea of like trans people in the population was somewhere like twenty percent. In reality, it's more like kind of one percent or something like that. And how like this is rather than a thing about like a kind of visibility of like rain, uh, it's more about the kind of idea of media hours and media presentation and how much fear is stoked into a thing. And I kind of wondered how this idea of like these like people coming up with their own narratives or even like just asking people to examine like their own kind of rain and water narratives how is there a way that this can become something that that kind of counteracts that the idea of like at least diffusing the idea of there being one story or something else yeah i guess like with the great british great british rain paradox they only surveyed two thousand people as the sample um, and it's unclear the socioeconomic background of these people but the survey or the report itself is you know encouraging people to use dishwashers so you have you know households that have you know certain um, appliances that others might not um, and you know, I think it, it's more about like the way that hmm, let me kind of like word the sentence in my head um I think it's 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 funny because when I was speaking to um you know my peers up and down the country they were saying well we know what water scarcity is like because we come from countries our parents come from countries where water is scarce you know there are these like you know lived knowledges that come through when you just have day-to-day -day conversations that um are really yeah dependent on who you're asking um and I think that's um often it's it's quite um targeted those questions they're framed in a way that gets the answer that they want and there's a difficulty because the narrative that the report was um 
putting across was this kind of seeing is believing is why we're here now in this in this um environmental and climate um, crisis that's brought water scarcity and this is actually quite an ableist like approach to be um to be going at for the authorities because it's saying that well we're kind of shifting the blame of our kind of accountability to communicate and we're just going to say because you've taken on your own uh kind of agency to read like the window outside as like the um the facts of the climate um not changing is something that is really dangerous and so yeah it's it's that's something that i was really concerned about in in critiquing that report mm. sorry does that answer the question yeah i think so i mean it wasn't oh, much God. of a question more of a like a kind of like just a thing i was thinking about um i wanted to um see like a uh, i guess Do you see, like, do either of you see this idea of, like, um, do you see any other ways that that kind of appropriation can be a, like a, a strategy through kind of science fiction to to, to create these kind of counter narratives and only like other examples or other things that you are interested in? And I guess, Relis, Angela, I haven't heard any science fiction stuff from you. So I'd like really keen to find out what kind of thing you're into as well. Yeah, um, for me, like, I, I'm really like... Um... I really believe that we can't speculate without having an understanding of how we got here in the first place. So in terms of kind of like dreaming up futures, like to know and be accountable to the histories that have passed um, is really important. And for that project itself, like those vector fictions came through um, more in the illustrations and the kind of histories and presence were articulated in the, I guess, the videoed, um, living room conversations that we were calling them um and i think like in terms of like the speculative fiction aspect going a bit further with these works like um my practice is kind of like evolving in this uh kind of like quite fun like space at the moment where i'm bringing in kind of like data engineering projects on like climate data with kind of um a kind of a faux kind of historical archive like film narrative with also the kind of the uh tropes of speculative fiction and like fantasy that you see quite a lot in kind of 90s Chinese like films and I I just it's just kind of like instant drama of like um like um kind of like movie effects that were used at that time that I'm kind of like really drawn to because it's so um, in your face, but showing a lot of ripples. I was working with a group recently um, on kind of like Hong Kong diaspora kind of narratives up in Sheffield. And like this term called like We One One was described that came, that comes through in kind of like Chinese fantasy films where you kind of just like visualize the ripples of like these kind of um energies that you're passing through to other people um so you know how do we kind of visualize um influences in a way that is kind of creative and through visual media i kind of wanted to ask tom a question like what what are kind of contemporary um kind of uses of of Moorcock's characters like have any kind of 
visual artists, for example, taking this on like beyond like literary like authors. Um, could you say a bit more about that? Um, so I'm not actually that well versed on in the people who have con contemporaneously used um, Jerry Cornelius as a character. Michael Moorcock is still writing them every now and again and haven't read all of them. And they're often a kind of reading of the current polit particular political situation and then a kind of ironic comment on them. Um, there's, there's an illustrator who died a few years ago last year called David Britton, who did some really amazing illustrations of uh, Jerry Cornelius. He was a Manchester-based artist. Um, Grant, Grant Morrison, is that the name of a, a, a graphic novelist? Uh, apparently, Michael Moorcock was very annoyed with him because he wrote a character who was very similar to Jerry Cornelius, but he wasn't named Jerry Cornelius, and that caused a big uh, fracas in the graphic novel community in the UK. Um, so Michael Moorcock tried to take the character back. Um, but in terms of this idea of trying to appropriate the imagery of, you know, queerly trying to appropriate imagery in, in the present moment, I think that the person who's doing that the best for me is Isabel Weidner, who's a, a, a novelist who's written a couple of novels in the last couple of years that often take characters from popular fiction and bring them into the narrative and completely rework them into a different form. Um, so in We Are Made of Diamond Stuff, uh, Eleven from Stranger Things is a, is a major character. Um, and in their most recent book, they use Bambi as a character as well. Um, so again, this kind of queer appropriation, but at the same time <clears throat> in language, like experimental techniques, but very readable. So I don't know if that's a direct line from Michael Moorcock. I don't think it is at all. I think it's more a direct line from the 1960s. Um, but there are certainly people who are trying to do interesting things today. But the yeah, there are bigger, there are huge organisations that are trying to stop that kind of thing. So I don't know if you heard that Loki, so um, Disney, uh, have control of Marvel. And I think there were reports of them trying to stop people using the word Loki as a description of what they were doing. Maybe it was some kind of religious festival because they have a trademark on the word Loki. Um, so I think there is quite a big problem at the moment of trying to appropriate things in a queer way, but having, you know, people punching down. Um, so I don't know what to say about that. <laughs> I think people should just do it anyway if they can. It does seem really weird, like the Jerry Cornelius is, is is quite odd in that it's like a character made to be appropriated. And you think, you'd, like you said, there's not many characters that are created like that, except for the house style things or for things like um, like the non-diplom, like uh, if you make a really bad film and you then credit it as Alan Smithy. Uh, so it's like a kind of shame a shame um, identity that you can take on if you want to disown something as a director and things like that. But I, I couldn't really think of many others that were, that were created specifically to share. But then I guess the thing is, it's like you can kind of bypass that, which is what other people do, like just steal a character rather than wait for one to be offered up as an open source thing. Um, okay. Um, I 
I have loads of stuff and I'm going to have to just like email you outside of this because we need to wrap up. Um, but thank you again. Thank you so much um, for, um, yeah. Thank you so much for this. I have to plug the show once in this as well. The show uh, uh, is still on at Wasting Art Centre. It's not about either of these things. These are just things that I was like thinking about. And that's why I asked some experts in. But it's on until the 11th of December. Um, and um, yes, please look up the work of um, Angela Chan and um, Tom Dillon. And um, thank you again for attending this thing. And thank you for Wising for hosting us. And this will be archived for don't know how long but for a bit okay thank you very much folks bye bye thanks uma thanks angela thanks thanks, <laughs> thanks everyone for watching <laughs>